Do you like candles? We all know that I love candles and I love the candles from Remy Moon. They are an Australian based small business and they make the best and most magical candles. All of their candles are made with high vibes, pure intentions, and each one is crafted with a little bit of Reiki healing that also suits the intention of the candle itself. All their candles are non-toxic and vegan, so they don't harm us or the animals. You can use the code SUBURBANWITCH for 15% off all of their products, and it's only for listeners of the Witch Talks podcast. Simply head to remymoon.com.au to get your candles now. Welcome to Witch Talks, the series for spiritual seekers, witches, and enlightened souls. I'm Hannah the Suburban Witch, professional tarot reader, astrologer, and witch, and I hope you're ready to get up close and personal with your favorite witches. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of the Witch Talks podcast. I am so glad to have you here. My name is Hannah O'Neill, also known as Hannah the Suburban Witch, and I am your lovely host for this podcast. Now, today's guest, Matthew, he is one of the rare guests of mine who does not identify as a witch. However, his topic of interest, his topic of speciality is very relevant for a lot of us. So we're going to jump straight into it because he explains way better than I could. And then I'm actually going to come back in the end and bring it back to a couple of people in our own community where I have seen things like this happening. And just super, super quickly, I promise we're about to get started. Just letting you know, I have an Instagram just dedicated to this podcast. It is at Witch Talks podcast. I would love to see you over there. I share lots of clips and videos and pictures and things from our guests and the things that they're sharing and talking about. And if you're listening to this close to when it actually releases, my upcoming class is on candle magic. It's happening on the winter solstice for those in in the Southern Hemisphere, which will be the summer solstice for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. And that is happening on Wednesday, June 21st here in Australia which will be the evening of Tuesday, June 20th, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Make sure to snap up your ticket before they go. You can purchase the live option for $80 Australian, or you can simply get the replay only if you can't join us live, and that is $70 Australian. Big reminder, though, to all of those people in the States and Europe, with the exchange rate, that almost halves. So you guys are pretty lucky. So join me in a couple of days time for the secrets of candle magic and we're going to go right into it. There's going to be a Q&A. It will be wonderful. This class is back by popular demand because you guys, everyone really loved it last time. It was really, really awesome. So hope to see you there. Now let's go over to Matthew. Enjoy. In this episode, I am chatting with Matthew Remsky about the New Age to Alt-Right Pipeline. Matthew is a former yoga teacher and now journalist and also one of the co-hosts of one of my favourite podcasts, which is the Conspirituality Podcast. He's also the author of many books, his most recent being a group effort with his podcast hosts, Derek and Julian, called Conspirituality, How New Age Theories Become a Health Threat. He is joining us via Zoom all the way from Toronto. Hey, Matthew, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. And I would like to open up this discussion by pulling a tarot card for you if you're comfortable. And 
asking if you have a question. It can be general guidance. It can be specific if you have something you want to find out a little bit more about. Totally up to you. Oh, so I I have a question that I'm bringing to you, and you're gonna <gasps> you're gonna read a card. Okay. If you're, if you're cool with that. Right. Uh, yeah, sure, for sure. Okay. So hmm. put you on the spot. <laughs> you might have to you might have to edit out some of a pause here. <laughs> totally um, let's see. Um, okay. Over the next five years for me, mm-hmm. what what genre of writing will be most effective for communicating what I would like to communicate. Perfect. What genre? Let's have a look. Now, as a fellow writer, although not yet published author, uh, fellow writer, I use the tarot all the time for my writing. It is a really really good tool. I don't know if it's something that you've ever utilised before. Never, no. Although uh, I did, I mean, we can get into it, but there was a time when I was um, actually quite far into Vedic astrology or East Indian astrology. Yeah. That's something that I would at some point love to study or at least learn more about. I find it so fascinating. Um, Did you have a good experience with that? Well, um, I had an interesting experience with it. I have a lot of thoughts about it. I mean, that could be its own episode, but uh, I don't, I mean, suffice it to say, I don't do it anymore. Um, and I'm, I much more prefer to kind of uh, understand and interpret the signs of my life <laughs> as, as they appear just in the material world at this point. Yeah. Understood. Vedic astrology, yeah. if anyone's unaware who's listening, that it can be very predictive. It is, I would say, one of the most predictive forms of astrology. Uh, I have a lot of friends who, uh, one of my one of my good friends is, she grew up in Singapore. Uh, she's Tamil and she swears by her Vedic astrologer. And right. a lot of the time she'll say, oh, I have to get back to you. I don't know if I can do that. I have to ask my astrologer first. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's that scales up in modern India, even to the level mm-hmm. of political political decisions, um, planning out public events. Um, in fact, Vedic astrology was implicated in one of the biggest super spreader events of COVID-19 in India because oh. Narendra Modi actually took the advice of his astrologers over the epidemiologists and planning for a big religious festival that was to take place in 2022, but they actually bumped it up Mm -hmm. to 2021. So yeah, pretty complicated stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And (laughs) I mean, that leads right into what we're going to be talking about specifically. But One other thing as well, I've noticed if anyone's watched things like Indian Matchmaker or anything like that, it plays a huge role in yeah. people choosing who they're going to spend the rest of their lives with. So it's it's, right. it's a big cultural aspect. Uh, mm-hmm. I find it fascinating, uh, but it's very different to modern astrology or anything people might have heard me doing before. Now, I've pulled a card for you today, and I've used, so usually I just pick a random deck depending on who I'm reading for, and today it felt very traditional, so I've gone with the traditional Rider Waite Smith deck. Now, this card, and again, if you're not familiar with them, this one is actually called The Lovers. So what it looks like, we have these, it's very um, biblical Garden of Eden Genesis vibes, right? There's two naked people down the down the bottom of the card, and we have this big angelic figure in the sky behind them. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people think this card is 
romance or true love, but this is not really the vibe of this card. That's more the two of cups. So romance is not the genre for you to go down or just put that out there. Uh, in terms of in terms of what you're going to be writing or what to focus on in terms of the words to get the message out there the best. Firstly, this card's ruled by Gemini, and if you've done anything with astrology, you'd know that is very much about words, teaching, sharing, uh, in a way that is also quite relatable as well. So right. bringing it to a way that everybody can understand and everyone can see themselves in it. Right. The other part of this card, there's a very big... Um, focus on both the word union and the word choices okay so union obviously bringing two things together so i would even suggest in terms of uh, ways you can meld the two different polar opposites like the duality that you have in the things that you're talking about especially if you're still going down the path of cults and conspirituality and all of that so it, it encompasses religion spirituality health science psychology it's a way to bring them all together in a way that's going to be very easy to understand. So um, in a way that gives people an option that they can make a choice. So right. clear, almost like clearing it up and giving them mm -hmm. the choice or the question there to help them question themselves. So that to me could be writing something that has either sections where they could journal or sections where people could start to look at what they're believing or look at what they've, fallen into with a really critical eye but doesn't make them feel silly for doing so if that makes sure. sense all right so accessibility and integration yes. would be the two would be the two keywords okay I'll, yeah, I'll buy that i think i think that resonates yeah well done well done <laughs> thank thank you tarot gods <laughs> oh it's so fun and if anyone is a writer especially creative writing so i do a lot of creative writing every now and then i'll be writing a scene and need to put in a character like just oh, I need a character to come and bring in x y and z what am I going to do so I'll just pull a card and be like oh okay this one all right might tell me whether they're male or female it might tell me what their strengths or their weaknesses are it can just be a really good you know push to to create something really interesting that didn't think of before so it's really fun tool well two two things that I'd say is that firstly I think it's easy for me to find resonance in that particular card because, um, you know, I do have not, I mean, everybody has multiple sides, but I mean, I think two main personae that I have worked through in my professional life, uh, writing wise would be, uh, fiction and poetry earlier in my life mm -hmm. and then journalism, um, more currently. And of course, I mean, at this point I'm thinking about now I'm also uh, a parent and I'm thinking about, okay, well, what in the young adult sort of field would combine those particular worlds? Um, and so young adult fiction is going to be accessible and we have, so, so yeah, it's a, it's a resonant card. And at the same time, I do want to say that if you had pulled another card, um, it could you, also would <laughs> you would you would have given a similarly evocative reading mm -hmm. and I would have said and I would have said yes that sounds resonant too <laughs> and I would have figured out how to make something work from from your particular analysis and I think that speaks to the fact that mm -hmm. it's it's the tarot deck seems to be a pretty good icebreaker so nice to meet you uh, <laughs> and and uh, very very happy to to start. Although if I'd pulled the two of cups and told you to go and write a romance novel, you may 
See, I don't think you would have told me to go write a romance novel <laughs> uh, because that would have been very bold, right? I mean, because mm -hmm. I think you you know enough about my work so far that that yeah. I think suggesting such an incredible shift uh, would would be. I mean, Just... I mean, you might you might be that bold as a predictor. I don't know, <laughs> but um, I I think whatever you would have pulled, you would have used it to make a connection, and I think that's a point. I think that's yeah. the point. Yeah, definitely. So. When we're talking, so obviously your book is called Conspirituality, which is that yeah. a term that you and your co-host co created? You made that word up? No. Um, the word is a portmanteau of conspiracy theory, theorizing, and spirituality. And it's um, derived from, well, the theory behind it is derived from a paper that was published in 2011 by David Vos and Charlotte Ward. Charlotte Ward was an independent researcher in the UK. David Vos is previous, I mean, I think he's in the UK mainly, but he's an American sociologist of religion. And they wrote a paper called The Emergence of Conspirituality, in which they argued that they were seeing, that they were observing the emergence of a new form of kind of social movement that combined the um paranoid and world negative points of view that are common within conspiracy theorizing with the aspirational or desire for the new world type of um mood that characterizes the the new age they suggested that um the conspiracy theorizing side of this social movement was coded male and quite cynical and that the um and that uh, speaking of speaking of the lovers by the way uh and that the new age side of the equation was coded female and they said that um it was an online movement they said that um the influencers that they were tracking were creating a kind of uh, social and religious paradigm by which they could interpret catastrophic events in the world as as holding great spiritual potential and we took that term and we developed it through the the you know the research that we did for the podcast uh to apply to some of the social media chaos that we saw exploding at the beginning of a pandemic um and i think how we've really developed the term is that we have um, argued that it really shows up, conspirituality shows up wherever, you know, unrealistic New Age spiritual beliefs uh, intersect with a kind of paranoid conspiracy logic in response to a confusing and terrifying world. Um, we've shown that conspirituality blurs the lines between doomsday prophecy, uh, social media charisma, and alt-health profiteering, and also claims of spiritual revelation. And we also characterize it as uh, emotionally contagious, a kind of overreaction to real issues. So, you know, conspirituality influencers and followers have legitimate concerns about the institutions that govern their lives, um, be they medical, political, technological, or financial. And the answers that they come up with for those concerns involve fantasies of spiritual warfare and heroism. So, you know, parents who have very earnest questions about vaccine safety will become crusaders who are saving their children from 
you know, corrupt and, and vampiric doctors and, you know, citizens who have really good reason to doubt the integrity of mainstream media uh, begin to turn to really dubious online sources for daily news. So um, there's also this aspect of conspirituality that involves the performance of a kind of priestly persona that often the conspirituality influencer will present themselves as a shaman or a revolutionary. Um, but at the same time, they're also like selling wellness and spiritual trinkets uh, that will save the world that's in peril. And um, a lot of the time, and this is, I think, a key point, the success of conspirituality as a social movement and the influencers who run it really depends on how efficiently they can terrify their followers first, but then enchant them with the promises and products of transformation. Yeah, it is such a complex and almost like rich topic. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Totally. And unfortunately, it does cross over into so many aspects. It, When you say new age, it doesn't even stay in just the new age section, but it it spreads. I've seen it in the home birthing community, free birthing community, while pregnancy, it, it spreads through there, which then leads into this, uh, the witchcraft side of things um, with very womb-centered witchcraft circles and right. they, they start to fire each other up and then suddenly you're like, what happened? This started as one thing and now it's over here. And right. And and with let me just say that with with home birthing, with free birthing or wild birthing, um, we follow a number of influencers right. who take a legitimate critique of um, overly intrusive medical in interventionism during birth, uh, who, you know, look at, uh, you know, rates of induction, for example, or mm -hmm. rates of cesarean section or or, you know, whatever metric they're using to describe a kind of over clinicalization of what they see as a very natural and you know miraculous activity uh and they they push that critique farther into you know in the words of yulan norris clark uh into describing what they call the industrial gynecological complex where doctors are actually gynecologists especially you know even if they're women are actually engaged in um uh you know oppressing women's bodies through medical interventions uh, and that that's the point mm -hmm. it's not just that that they're misguided it's that it's that um the um you know the 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 medicalization of birth has the purpose of um you know, despiritualizing or, you know, depriving women of of some sort of soul freedom. And that once they don't have the experience of natural childbirth, that somehow they won't have access to the rest of their spiritual life. Um, and so it's a very radical kind of um, overreach uh, with a particular critique that begins as legitimate and that adds a lot to feminist discourse and then crosses over into this line of, uh, really sort of um, almost uh, critical uh, or, or urgent um, paranoia about what institutions are actually doing to us. So it's a great, it's a great example. And, um, and I also want to say, this is what I left out of my little definitional riff, was that um, all of these influences tend 
towards right-wing politics in terms of how they express themselves in real-world attitudes towards policy. Mm. Um, so this is also evident in home birthing and, and free birthing and in discourses of wellness that are feminist because they center upon the essentialized power of a woman's body or you know the power of the womb, uh, that very easily bleeds over into a kind of uh, gender essentialism that becomes the basis of a handshake between those communities and right-wing communities that are very concerned, for instance, about how trans people are ruining the world, right? Yeah. So uh yeah it's 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 a very common and disturbing part of our beat to cover the fact that um almost all of these influences that um are arguing on one hand for a more organic lifestyle and for you know a a an, an eschewing of medical interventions and no we don't need vaccines because we have natural immunity a lot of those attitudes rhyme with um quite right-wing attitudes and conservative attitudes about the essential nature of the body and gender is part of that essentialism yeah and i see even that slippery slope if we stick with that birth community, um, because I myself was uh, going for a home birth and I started to see it was quite shocking, the the interesting uh, intersectionality of people in those uh, Facebook groups and things like that. But the slippery right. slope of uh, someone wanting to home birth and usually they were either very Christian and conservative or right. this very new age type of person that was drawn to it. And very few of us were sort of this in the middle type of person like, what I found myself to be, right? Comparison. And then I found they all sort of ended up in this one section where they were not wanting to get birth certificates because they're sovereign beings. And it just went there so quickly and they both started to agree. And I'm like, this is strange. <laughs> Don't know what's happening. Yeah. And, and that is an amazing sort of narrative pathway that you're talking about because mm -hmm. what you have is um, the, the, the values of home birthing suddenly becoming transitive and politicized to all of these other areas of life um and and that the this the symbology of birthing your child outside of the medical complex becomes analogous to birthing your child outside of the 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 reach of the state mm -hmm. that you know the child is not actually going to be a participant within a worldly community uh, that the child is going to be free they're going to be sovereign and this brings up another aspect of the politics of conspirituality which tends towards not only right wing attitudes but also uh, very libertarian approaches towards um, you know individual rights um the 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 rights of the home uh and a kind of sort of rejection of the notion of mutual aid or the fact that we live in a society at all and mm -hmm. that we you know have to share a monetary system and we have to you know share governments and we have to do public policy together um conspiritualists on the hard right end of the spectrum really don't want to have anything to do with any of that stuff because the way in which problems in the world will get fixed is going to be through spirituality, not through uh, cooperation, not through democracy, uh, not through any kind of method that would denigrate the notion that 
you know, their spirituality answers every question. That's that's a crucial thing for them is that is that the ideas that you hold dear about, you know, the unity of all things or the sacredness of the earth or the holiness of your own body that those ideas have to trump everything else. And that's why um something like vaccine science is so difficult for some of these people to accept because the vaccine is not a bespoke like um you know individualized treatment according to your temperament or your doshas or some shit like that it's 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 you know 0.5 milliliters of a single fluid that everybody in the world can benefit from regardless of their you know, blood type or their astrological sign or their, you know, or their, or their, you know, whatever their, their, um, what are the, uh, what's, what's the Taoist thing with the lines? What is that? Enneagram, right? (laughs) It's like, it's like, it's like, there is no, there is no vaccine for a particular Enneagram, right? Everybody gets the same thing. And that speaks to the kind of homogenization of a public health approach that is very, very insulting to the individualist, to the libertarian, and also to the person who economically makes their living by creating bespoke treatments for each individual person, right? Uh, so so there's a lot going on there. And and I also think that just to just to extend that a little bit, that um the it's the individualism that makes uh, people within the conspirituality demographic very attracted to um, the notion that, for instance, I don't need to mask myself during a pandemic mm-hmm. because I know that I'm okay. I know that my breath is clean. I know that I can heal myself by doing deep breathing exercises. You know, you can't tell me when I'm sick. Um, I'm so self-aware that, you know, there's no point in me wearing a mask because if I was sick, then I would know it and I would take care of myself. Um, and that just is not how viruses work. You you just do not know when you're infectious uh, in the first several days, depending upon what the virus is. But that really is offensive uh, to the libertarian and to the individualist uh, sensibility who really depends, the person who really depends on this notion that I am sovereign, I know my body, no one else can know my body better than I do. Well, let me tell you about, you know, oncology, because some people know your body at certain points in your life better than you do. And that's just the way it is. And if you don't kind of like accept that, uh, you won't be able to benefit from, you know, appropriate treatment. Mm, Absolutely. And when, when things start to tend towards that right side, the right political side, what is the difference between it just being right leaning and becoming alt-right? Like what, where is the line? Where is that step across? Well, I, I think alt-right is a term that that we have used on the podcast previously. I think it's a little bit, uh, it might be a little bit outdated at this point because it's it really dates back to uh, about 2008. I think it's coined by uh, Richard Spencer, who's like the neo-Nazi guy, the white nationalist, um, who was trying to create a category for white supremacist, openly white supremacist and um, you know, uh, radically pro-capitalist thought and uh, sentiment that that went farther than typical right-wing media. So, um, 
I think that maybe the question is about, uh, or or maybe, you know, I think you're asking a good question, but I, I would refine it to say that there is a natural tendency for people involved in conspirituality to simply be magnetized towards conservative modes of thought, unless they have some sort of prior analysis or political training that will give them some resistance to that. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is about how uh, the yoga, wellness, and new age communities since the 1970s have been actively engaged in a kind of self-depoliticization, uh, a kind of um, uh, the notion that, oh, uh, I'm above the battleground. You know, I may vote, I may not vote, but actually voting isn't going to be what changes the world. I have to embody the change that I want to see in the world. Um, you know, right and left don't really mean anything, you know, because I can bring my two hands together and namaste and everything will be better. Um, you know, there there's this whole feeling of uh, politics is this dirty, mundane, worldly, unenlightened activity, and I'm going to be above it. And if I meditate on non-duality, then I don't have to take this path or that path. And so that's been sort of like a, a drumbeat underneath yoga, wellness, and new age culture for at least 40 or 50 years. And what that means is that when right-wing ideologies like QAnon swing through the uh, yoga world in you know 2019, 2020, there's people don't have any resistance to it. They don't recognize that what they're seeing is a an emergent fascist mythology that wants to persecute and kill uh, deviant liberals, uh, including homosexuals and trans people, uh, that wants to sort of prosecute political enemies by calling them pedophiles. Um, they don't really see that what they are engaged with is not really a spirituality at all, uh, but it's a hard right ideology. Now, there, you, your question was like, how does how does the person within this world like go from right leaning to um, you know a hard right politics? Well, maybe that line we can say is is really where they cross over into a kind of activism, which is kind of hard to sort of assess because. So much of this activity is uh, on social media. So much of it, it is gamified. And so, you know, as soon as a person starts, I don't know, tending towards uh, a politics that might not be native to them, that might not have anything to do with their family values growing up, that might not have anything to do with their their class position within the society and their class interests, uh they they might begin to share those materials online uh, mm. and they might do it in a way that puts out feelers like I'm starting to wonder or I'm just asking questions about, you know, whether, you know, Donald Trump might be a light worker or, you know, whether he's, you know, he's actually been sent to disrupt the status quo between left and right because, you know, everybody's up in arms and, you know, a little bit of churning the the soup isn't bad, of course. Um but but then the 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 person in the yoga wellness or new age communities can can become make that political turn a part of their brand right um you know an example that i'm thinking about is uh a fairly sort of small you know level operator named bernard uh, gunther who's like a massage therapist but also like a new age teacher in i don't know sedona or or somewhere like that, Taoist, something like that. 
Uh, and he went from, you know, teaching kind of new age courses about awakening and consciousness and the new paradigm and this and that to writing a 24,000 word novella about whether or not QAnon was a real thing. And, you know, spoiler alert, he, he believes that it is, or he did at least two years ago. Um, and at that point, you know, the, the, the influencer becomes a political actor, you know, much more than somebody who infuses their wellness products with politics. The politics become the point. And I think for some people, <laughs> this is very attractive because what they were doing in yoga, wellness, and new age discourse was kind of boring to them, to be frank, right? Like they they got to the point where, uh, you know, they were they had just made too many posts about green smoothies. They had made too many posts about, you know, the the breathwork workshop that was going to rebirth their new consciousness. Now, suddenly, they had something political to obsess about and to, you know, to really make good on the mantra of being the change they wanted to see in the world. They could now go out to protests. They could now wave signs that would save the children. Uh, they could now feel like they were political actors. And I think that's a very, very powerful feeling for people. Yeah, absolutely. With yoga, wellness, religion, spirituality, whether it's witchcraft or Christianity even, uh, because it comes from both sides, what is it that about being in these communities or being in these spiritual belief groupings that leads people down the garden path to essential oils, curing cancer, and elite bloodlines are controlling humanity? What do you think it is that makes people susceptible to that level of thinking? Well, um, I'll get to the pseudoscience in a moment, but I would say that the the crossover that I think is very powerfully explained comes to us through the work of the political scientist uh, Michael Barkun, who says that um, the conspiracy theorist is the person who fervently believes that everything is connected, nothing is as it seems, and everything happens for a purpose. Now, your listeners might hear those three phrases and go, oh, right. That those sound like good things. Yeah. <laughs> those, <laughs> those, that's exactly that's what I think, and and so you should because those three principles are at the heart of a lot of global spiritualities. Nothing is as it seems. Everything is connected, and everything ha happens for a purpose. These are very aspirational and positive qualities, and yet Michael Barkun is using them to describe how conspiracy theories form. Well. Um, it's Charlotte Ward and David Voas in that uh, in that article from 2011 who point out that both communities use these principles uh, as as sort of articles of faith to describe a world that they are seeking to have a certain kind of control over uh, in terms of how they interpret it. They it's a way of creating a story about the world that gives a, a sense of empowerment and safety and then also community with others who think the same way. And, um, you, you know, one of the things that uh, that leads to is a strong sense of 
contrarianism. So if nothing is as it seems, then why would you believe public health officials? Uh, if everything is connected, why wouldn't you see the sort of spurious relationship between vaccines and autism? Uh, if if uh, everything happens for a purpose, why wouldn't you understand COVID as an opportunity rather than as a disaster, right? Uh, and I think where, where, where pseudoscience slips in is that these three principles also promote the notion of a kind of stigmatized knowledge, uh, which is another Barkun term. And what he means by that is people can feel very excited and empowered by the notion that they know something that nobody else doesn't, and that they know something that is actually being suppressed by the powers that be, right? And so, um, you know, it's very attractive for a person to begin to believe that their essential oils uh, are going to be very effective against COVID because they've already decided that the public health advice is untrustworthy and that vaccines are linked to autism. Uh, it must be that they are suppressing the true value of thieves oil in um, or tea tree oil in combating the virus. And yeah, I, I, I think the step is not that hard to make. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a there's a there's a there's a feeling of distrust and contrarianism that morphs into uh, a, a kind of replacement faith for something that is equally implausible, right? Uh, you know, it's like it's like why, why should what's the evidence for thieves' oil being, you know, effective against uh, COVID? Well, there isn't any except for my own sense of kind of like tuned inness and spiritual correctness and my own self certainty my own standing in my truth, my the fact that I did my own research. So there are a lot of aspects of, of kind of empowerment that go along with this, this feeling of stigmatized knowledge of this thing that, that you know and nobody else does and you have access to because you're a good spiritual person. Yeah, I've noticed one other thing as well in a lot of the online group spaces in regards to things like essential oils or other uh, natural alternatives uh, that the government has no control over yeah is i what i believe is that a lot of people who may not have it as a cure who may have tried it and it didn't work really really hesitant to share that or if they do their post gets deleted that sort of a thing it, there's this almost like fear of being the one person not promoting that if it doesn't actually work so all you end up seeing right is all the positives like oh my gosh yes. this person used it and they were healed and they were saved and it's like well there is placebo that's a thing and then also maybe you know they got better and and we see that i think as well in in miracles being performed whether that is in christianity or whether that yeah. is in something like a joe dispenser meditation that somebody gets absolutely <laughs> you're, you're saying something very, very important, which is that which is that the the miracle reports and the testimonials are an essential part of the marketing technique for the for the actual product. Um, we actually covered this very heartbreaking story of a woman named Faye, um, who uh, uh, an Australian actually named uh, Gavin Ryan, who's an artist there. I can't remember whether he's from Sydney or from from. Um, uh, what's the famous like new age place? Uh, not Bondi, but Bondi? Um, 
Oh, Byron Bay. That's right. He's from Byron. Yeah, he's from Byron Bay. Anyway, he he went to he went to um, Bali uh, because uh, he was seeking out wood carvers for a particular project, and he met this woman. They fell in love. Uh, she was she was a yoga teacher. She was from in- Indonesia. Her family was in Jakarta, and um, they had this like wonderful relationship uh, for a couple of years, and then she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and. Uh, her yoga uh, pathway for her had been so powerful and helpful in freeing herself uh, and helping her heal from a very bad prior relationship. And it had helped her with her self-image in a number of different ways. And she's also in Ubud, right? Which is kind of like, you know, yoga capital of the world. And she's surrounded by people who are reading all of this stuff and, and, you know, Western medicine is is this kind of stigmatized thing off to the side. And uh she delayed get seeking treatment. Also, well, it's no, it's it's not just that she delayed seeking treatment, but she went to a proper oncologist who gave her a very stern and dire prognosis and said, This is the radical treatment that we advise you pursue, and we advise that we you do it immediately because this can get very serious. Uh, She didn't like his manner. She didn't like the sort of zero sum, um, you know, prognosis. And instead of getting a second opinion or finding somebody with a better bedside manner, uh, she decided in sort of alignment with her culture and the values that she was surrounded by that all doctors are like that, and they all just want to give you double mastectomies, and uh, you know, and chemotherapy is going to ruin your life, and it's poison, and you know, they don't know what they're talking about. And you can heal yourself with this energy work uh, and those herbs, and you know, and then she gets into things like black salve. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's like a caustic that people have been using for, you know, tumors ineffectively and disastrously for over a hundred years, and it just eats away your flesh and as it eats away your flesh all of this like goop comes out that the healer will claim is then the tumor being excised uh, and of course it's bullshit um she just delays treatment um and she eventually they wind up back in australia and she's able to benefit from some good oncology but like the doctors sort of see her coming in the door and she's incredibly ill and it's incredibly advanced and they're trying to do what they can uh and you know, she participates a little bit in that. And of course, her husband is just trying to be supportive of this person's, of of Faye's um, love for this material and her, um, you know, her, her deeply held beliefs about her capacity to heal her own body. And, you know, it just, uh, it's such an incredibly tragic story because, um all that she got from her Facebook groups were the miracle stories, which is what your question was about. Mm-hmm. There was nobody who followed up with, yeah, you know, I tried these herbs for for six months and I actually, you know, I went from stage two to stage four uh, in the particular cancer that I had. Or uh, actually, no, this didn't, you know, cure my diabetes. And in fact, I went into, you know, insulin shock. And <laughs> uh, I know that it does you know, as well when they... Yeah. 
when they then see that everyone else it's working for, it's not working for me, it must be my fault. I'm yes, not exactly. That, that's that's the only option. Is mm. that's the only option, and it um, that's a very powerful control mechanism within these groups uh, that polices people's um, uh, uh, actual sort of honest observations of what the of what the um, of what the thing is doing for them. Uh, and it's a very old principle uh, that dates right back to, I mean, it, it goes right back to um, new thought in the 1920s and Helena Blavatsky and, and Christian science. Uh, and then it has this lineage that goes forward into uh, Louise Hay and you can heal your life. Uh, and then that's all wrapped up in, you know, things like A Course in Miracles. Yes. Yes. Which I did want to talk about as well. Um, yeah. With all of that, though, all of that material can be seen as incredibly ableist. Which Absolutely. Absolutely. It, may, it boils my blood, like, beside the point. Uh, with A Course in Miracles, now, that is one topic that I get a lot of questions about. Uh, I personally have steered well clear of it because I listen to you guys, <laughs> so I know not to go there. Uh, but I have a lot of either my followers or even friends that swear by A Course in Miracles yeah. and say it's changed their life. And I wanted to to ask specifically, because you guys do talk about it quite a lot on the podcast, what is it about A Course in Miracles that makes it so um, problematic? Well, first of all, I would say to anybody listening who feels that the course has changed their life, I, I, everything that I say that follows, I, I don't want to take any of that away from you, but I would suggest that... Um, it, it, there's there might be an attribution issue going on that often, and this is true of any spiritual practice, often when people say uh, yoga changed my life or this diet changed my life or this particular book changed my life, um, often what's happening is uh, maybe under the influence of the marketing of that particular product or maybe because, you know, it's there just seems to be such a strong correlation. Um what often is getting left out is that when you started going to yoga, you started feeling less isolated. When you started going to yoga, it was the first exercise that you'd had in a long time. <laughs> and and any kind of exercise might have had the same impact. And um, as we know, endorphins make you happy. Exactly. As Woods and, will tell us. <laughs> right. And and um that uh it can also be that when you uh, changed your diet a little bit. It got you thinking differently about, you know, whether or not you were worthy of care, right? And that itself can have really strong positive psychological effects. And so I would say that, yeah, it's possible. It's very, very a real experience that people say that the Course in Miracles changed their life. Um, I would say that a non-devotional, um, very kind of, uh, literary savvy and comparative reading of the text shows that it has some pretty nasty qualities that you may have um, sort of overlooked in favor of the general feeling of uh, certainty and clarity that the voice purports to have because of course you know the voice is supposed to be that of of Jesus but it's not the Jesus you grew up with it's it's a it's a new age Jesus it's a different kind of Jesus um so first of all I mean 
you know, the the claim, let's just start there. The the claim is that is that A Course in Miracles was channeled directly from Jesus by a clinical psychologist named Helen Shookman starting in 1965. And most course students will maintain a kind of faith in this one-to-one uh, accurate transmission of the channeled voice. But what they may not know is that the first notes that come out of this project, which I think was kind of like an entranced writing project, like as a writer, it's not surprising to me that somebody feels possessed by a particular voice or a kind of diction for a number of years and then just keeps writing on it. Like I've written whole novels like that and Jesus wasn't talking to me. Um, and what what people should understand is that her first notes were so obviously about her own concerns um, and neuroses. You know, the Jesus in the first versions of A Course in Miracles is homophobic, uh, is, um, you know, sort of super Freudian, um, but also anti-Freudian in the sense that, you know, he really wants to assert that God has more answers than psychology does. Um, they There are all kinds of sort of um, uh, inside baseball discussions of which therapists are better and whether Jung is better than, you know, auto rank or whatever. Uh, and that all gets edited by people who have you know very strong motivations to produce what ends up being what ends up feeling like a kind of scriptural text complete with iambic pentameter uh, and with all of the dodgy more you know obviously politically incorrect stuff uh, ironed out and it proposes that it is a non-dualistic update to uh, Christianity. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, it, it suggests that salvation is always already our natural state. And that, and here's where the self-blame comes in. If we don't perceive ourselves as being one with God at all times, it's simply because we are delusional. We're dreaming a dream. And, you know, this isn't a, an original message. Uh, it it kind of appropriates some very old principles from Indian philosophy. In fact, I, I don't think that it would have been as popular as it was uh, or it has been if it didn't sort of uh, commit this final colonial act of Western Orientalism to absorb a kind of Indian metaphysics into a Christian narrative. Um, but that absorption means that a number of aspects of uh, Christian theology get kind of knocked down. For instance, The Course in Miracles suggests that the crucifixion, uh, the whole history of Jesus was a kind of illusory play put on for children. Um, Jesus didn't really take birth to suffer and die alongside human beings as most theologies would have it. Uh, rather, Jesus is supposed to realize a final lesson in the in the illusory nature of the body uh, and the illusory nature of death. Now, all of that might be okay, but the surrounding sort of context of it is this notion that everything is in your mind. Uh, and this makes it a very solipsistic and individualistic text that generally disconnects people from their uh, material considerations. It, it generally depoliticizes students of the course. 
Uh, it makes them feel as though they, you know, don't that everything is already okay. That any war or strife or conflict in the world that they see is actually a projection of their own inner confusion, um, and that leads to a kind of I would argue a kind of narcissistic spirituality that really doesn't reach outside of itself to wonder about you know how one's spirituality can be formed in relation to other people or in relation to projects of mutual aid. Um, and this is what makes the candidacy of Marianne Williamson so incredibly, in the States, so incredibly strange. Because in the morning, she is teaching things like sickness is a defense against the truth, or I am not a body, I am free. And in the afternoon, she's talking about progressive ideals like, you know, um, slavery reparations or um you know uh free health care universal health care and so on one side there's a there's a progressive kind of um I, I would say a veneer to to williamson's uh messaging that she doesn't really have i would say she she doesn't really have the political experience to enact but on the base level, there's this kind of metaphysical belief in the power of the mind over everything else, which leads her to do things like, you know, on March 20th, 2020, like nine days after the WHO declares a pandemic, she goes on Facebook Live and she tells people that they can do a meditation on light pouring through their bodies and that will that will boost their immune systems. Um and that's not a thing, right? Like you, you can meditate all you want and the novel coronavirus doesn't give a shit. Like it just will not care how much you've meditated. It will enter your cells and it will fuck shit up and that's it. Uh, and, and you know, it's not like uh, she's a regular religious leader where she's saying, you know, um, we really want to remember in our hour of existential need that there's a there's a larger picture, or that you know the the arc of justice bends towards, um, or the arc of history bends towards justice. It's more like you know you have the power of God in your body, and you can use your breath to boost your immune system and help push away the virus. And those are two very different uh, religious approaches to to political activity. Uh, and I would just say that I would just say that anybody who thinks that a course in miracles is a viable social document um, is not really getting that it really is solipsistic, that it really just does focus on um, what you do inside your own thoughts uh, as a means for salvation. Mm, it's very uh, two things. Her light meditation is giving me very um, Anthony Williams medical medium <laughs> yeah <laughs> except that you're supposed to like just take showers and celery juice right but calling in the light and you know very like much you 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 actually visualize yourself as a juicer with the blades on the top of your head and you just like <laughs> just press the <laughs> celery stalks down through your crown chakra and then it just sort of and do you like you poop out the the um the fiber but the green juice just fills you up and that's great and the all that, of is that what he does the fiber is just a skeleton. It is, it's, you don't need it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you don't need it. You don't need it. Right. Yeah. So with things like A Course in Miracles, um, would you, would you call that text a cult? Would it be cult-like? Culty? Um, no, I would say that it's a text that can 
foster cultic environments, but but anything really can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that the 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 dynamics of cultism um, can really emerge in any social dynamic, and so you know I, I would say that there is a kind of entrancing and uh, narcissistic quality to a course in miracles that probably more than other spiritual texts gets people into uh, a pattern by which they can um what do you call it uh a pattern a pattern by which they can um really remove themselves from social concern mm-hmm. and not pay attention to what's happening around them at the same time it's not like a course in miracles has been very efficient at organizing social groups i mean but i'm saying that as somebody who was in a course in miracles cult for 3 years so um it does happen it's just not that common yeah. i would say that um you know cult discourse has moved from analyzing brick and mortar groups that have very sort of predictable recruitment patterns uh and home bases and physical assets in the 1970s and 80s um you know every everyone from or everything from the people's temple to rajneesh puram to you know shambhala international uh to a more online medium in which uh the dynamism of charismatic leadership for example can be performed and broadcast but the more sort of concrete elements of social and behavioral control that cults foster that's a little bit harder to do you know uh if you're in rajneeshpuram in 1980 in oregon you know when you're getting up every day you know uh what you're supposed to be wearing you know when you're supposed to go to a group meditation that's basically a you know a hazing practice um you know when you're going to be going to the lectures and when you're going to be working in the soup kitchen if you follow a charismatic leader in the age of um internet cults uh it's it's a, the those behavioral issues are a lot harder to enforce mm-hmm. or those norms are harder to enforce and i would say that um uh the 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 retention that leaders have over followers is also weaker so there's something more entrepreneurial about it there's something more uh about uh being obsessed with subscribers um and subscriber count and and i think everybody who runs kind of online cultic environments i would give teal swan teal swan as an example here um they they don't really have to stress too much about whether the 120 people at their ashram are all in or not they have to think more about are they losing 10% you know or gaining 10% in any given month of their hundreds of thousands of youtube followers mm-hmm. and that's a very different proposition uh but that said the same kind of charismatic techniques apply making huge unevidenced claims based on some sort of miraculous backstory of having survived cosmic abuse uh and then you know kind of 
presenting oneself as being a prophet or a seer who knows the truth about everything all the time. Um, so the techniques are the same, but the milieu is different. And I think uh, cult theorists are still are still figuring that out. Yeah, it's it is very interesting because when you think of cult, like technically, I go oh Jonestown that that was a cult. Yeah, right. You right. can see that very clearly. But I think these days, as you said, th- those lines are a lot fuzzier. But the influence of having someone say, "Hey, drink this Kool Aid." Well, I know it wasn't Kool Aid. It was uh, I think it was a different brand name. But it was uh, I'm glad that you know. I'm glad that you know that that was wrong, <laughs> and also that you know, drinking the Kool Aid is kind of a fucked up thing to say because yes, it's it really it's a joke. Is. It's it's the joke at the expense of 800 dead people, including a bunch of children. Yes. Yeah, and a lot of them when were forced to, they didn't just willingly do it. How I know, oh. I know. And some of them were shot in the back of the head too. Yeah. However, the right. idea that um, someone could have that form of influence to say, hey, drink this thing that I made, made of unknown things that we don't really know where it came from. And this will clear you of all your toxins or this will deworm you. And right. people would would do that. They have that really far reaching influence and the charisma and it's, it's control, but it's it's less physical. It's in the tech tech space. It's on the internet. But I still right. think that that influence is there and that potential for damage of people just flowing with it and, and doing whatever they say is really- Yeah. The, the, the reach is broader. The effects are milder, uh, but, but there's much more wasted time in aggregate, right? It's like, because if you, you know, Jim Jones winds up killing over 800 people, uh, but Anthony Williams- ends up um you know mystifying millions with and 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 imagine the the hours of life uh i mean i'm not i'm not comparing him to a murderer Mm -hmm. of course but i'm saying that i would say that like if you offer millions of people if you convince millions of people to do something that is actually full of shit you're wasting their time Mm -hmm. you know you are you are wasting their not just their time, but their emotional uh, commitment and energy. You're wasting their uh, capacity for figuring out their own problems uh, using proper resources. Mm-hmm. You're wasting their, I mean, I, I think there's a very American attitude of like, oh, let people do what they want to do. Let them, let them, and and sure, of course, ultimately that's going to be how things shake out. But um, I, I, I do wish that people took a little bit more seriously like how much time is wasted mm. by the influencer who convinces a million people that celery juice will cure their diabetes because <laughs> it's not just that it's not just that they will delay medical treatment it's also that they will just spend time wrapped up in somebody else's charismatic bullshit yeah. and that's not fair like time is the thing that we have mm-hmm. uh and and uh, it shouldn't be stolen by by people who are making shit up and he's uh, there's very there's with the He's, he's clever because a lot of people go, oh, it's salad juice. It's not going to hurt you. But if you dive it, deeper, right, that's talking about, you know, cloud seeding and right. all the, it, it gets pretty intense. And a lot of what he says is actually very, very dark and fear mongering. Um, yeah, right. He tuned into his lives like they are scary and he's scaring people about, you know, all the stuff that's coming and how we have to focus on the light because this horrible stuff is going to come with political stuff. Like he's 
he has this facade of just being the right. summary guy, but it it does get dark. Right. And let me just, maybe we can finish by saying that this is like a key thing to look out for when you are negotiating these spaces is if somebody is promising something in one hand, but scaring the shit out of you with the other, they are creating a cultic dynamic in the sense that they are being a caregiver who is also a terrorizer, mm -hmm. uh, a person who invents the problem that they are going to solve. Uh, and that can create something that is known in, you know, uh, relational psychology as trauma bonding. Uh, it can create something called disorganized attachment. There's a great book by Alexandra Stein called Love and Brainwashing or Love, Terror and Brainwashing that I would recommend everybody read. Um, but I would just, I, just as a basic principle, uh, I would say that if somebody is promising you the moon, uh, but they've got a knife behind their back, um, and they show it from time to time, and they say, they say, you know, the world's going to hell in the handbasket, uh, or you know, five G is going to turn you into a human antenna, or the vaccine is going to make your kid autistic, and so here, buy my herbs. That's a double message of peril and saviorship and that is inconsistent it's megalomaniac and you should be able to spot it from a mile away it's not that hard mm -hmm. um it's the sign of somebody who really doesn't give a shit about you what they want to do uh is they want to sell their thing and they're going to scare you into doing it yeah i think that's a great way to wrap it up and with your book that you guys have written would you say that something that is a good i guess guide to spotting these uh, red flags in in influences in I would say so I mean we we cover we cover in the third part we we cover 10 of the most prolific conspirituality influencers and we we describe exactly what they do can so I think ten? that uh oh can I tell you the 10 mm, I'm going to get Yeah let me let me let me find the list here um you know what? I'm 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 not going to say it because uh, people can buy the book. But Christiane Northrup's on the list. So is Mickey Willis. So is Zach Bush. So is Kelly Brogan and Sayer G. Uh, and so is Guru Jagat, the late Guru Jagat. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. Well, if anyone is interested in purchasing your book, so it's just come out the week that this podcast is is due to come out. So in yeah, yeah, thirteenth. So where is the best place to? for them to buy is it going to be on amazon will there be kindle edition all the things it, it will be it will be anywhere you can get books uh try to go to a local bookseller if you can uh there's also an audiobook that's available through audible or any other um audiobook seller and uh yeah ebook edition should be available wherever you get those and um it's widely accessible it's published by hachette and public affairs so uh it's all over the world um it's published in canada and Wait a minute. Is it published just in Canada or Canada and Australia by Penguin by Penguin Random House? It would be Penguin Random House, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. So so yeah, you'll find it. It's it's not hard to find and, and we'll give a link in the show notes. Perfect. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you know the things that you guys do or follow you along on social media, where can they find you? Well, conspirituality.net has a contact form for the three of us, and then I can be reached through my Twitter handle uh, or my own personal website, matthewremski.com. Perfect. And I'll pop all of that in the show notes below as well. Thank you very much for joining me and chatting all things conspirituality. It's fascinating and a topic I'm sure you and I could both talk on for hours, but we I could. appreciate your time. It's been wonderful. Thank you.
Thank you so much. Talk Have to you soon. Have a great day. Bye. All right, everyone. Wasn't that a very enlightening episode? I hope you were taking notes because he is just a wealth of knowledge, isn't he? So one thing I really wanted to talk about was a couple of people in the witchcraft, occult, new age community who I have seen some of this stuff happening with. Now, the first one is someone called Georgina Rose, who goes by Dat Darling. Now, Georgina is a Thalamite and Thelema is a Western esoteric and occult, either social or spiritual philosophy. It's like a new religious movement that was founded by Alistair Crowley. So if you know much about Alistair Crowley, maybe I should do a mini-sode on him. He's a little bit infamous. He wasn't the greatest guy, but it spawned a group of people. And a lot of them are often hitting back on like, oh, okay, just because he was bad doesn't mean the whole all of us are bad. However, she was then, so Georgina Rose was then outed, and it all happened on Twitter or went down last year. She was outed as a presumed neo-Nazi with ties to Operation Werewolf. And a lot of her comments and her Twitter discourse and that sort of thing went into this traditional gender role stuff. It was weird. There's been a, a few weird things there. I'm actually going to put a link if you want to read more about that whole debacle. Um, because I know a lot, she had a huge following. She still has a huge following. And over on YouTube, she gets thousands and thousands of views every video she puts up. And I'm like, did people not know that she's possibly a neo-Nazi? Like, I don't want to put that on her because it's still kind of in the, she hangs around with neo-Nazis, let's say that. It just baffles me, <laughs> baffles me. And then I see a lot of people referencing things like blood libel, the elite, the 13 bloodlines that rule the earth and reptilian overlords, which leads all back into a lot of the stuff that David Icke spouts. And if anyone keeps up with my Instagram stories, you may have recalled when I decided to pick up a David Icke book, literally for shits and giggles. I could not finish it. I literally could not. I was like, this is so terrible. <laughs> I, I took it back to my library and I told them they needed this book off their shelves. Now I'm not usually one for like book banning sort of stuff, but it was very white supremacy based. And then once I started to actually research it afterwards, because in my head, I was like, oh, he thinks the queen's a lizard person. Ha ha ha. No, it was so much darker than that. Like, yes, he thinks that, but his rationale behind it all leads into white supremacy. He is a Holocaust denier and it is, it's anti-Semitic. It is horrid. It's a horrible, horrible book. I would presume all of his books are like that. To the point where he went, I think recently, tried to go to Canada to give a talk. And once people found out there, they actually barred him from entry. Like, he's really not a great guy. Yet a lot of his ideas I actually see in other witchcraft, occult, esoteric books and people. And they might not be as outright as reptilian overlords, but there's like elements of some of the stuff he says, which leads into Lemuria, Atlantis, those like real new agey and this is kind of where I almost separate the witchcraft to new age when it starts getting into Atlantis and Lemuria territory and starseed vibes like a lot of that echoes what he says in his books now I actually opened the podcast with a question around this because one area I notice the overlap of witchcraft community meets far-right conspiracy as we talked about was the womb-centered women's work women's circles. Now I'm all, I'm a fan of women's circles. I am a fan of what some people deem women's mysteries. You would have potentially heard my 
podcast episode with Dr. Danielle Arabina. And there is a time and place for that. However, where it gets problematic for me is A, if they're trans exclusionary, or B, if you have a look on my website, I have I have a blog. Did you know I have a blog? I have a blog. And I do a lot of reviews of books. And I did a critical review of a book called Blood Magic by Jane Hardwick Collings, who is a celebrated Australian author. I have actually never seen anyone speak a bad word about her ever. And she calls herself a shaman and runs womancraft style circles. Now, I've tried to look up why she calls herself a shaman, because there is something about white women calling themselves a shaman that have no indigenous links that just rubs me the wrong way. And she says that she was initiated into being a shaman by this random person that I cannot find anywhere on the internet. So strange. Now, one of the main critiques of that book, because a lot of the information in that book was actually kind of good, right? It wasn't too bad. However, she frequently quotes someone called Christiane Northrup, who you may have heard Matthew and I talking about. And she quotes her as a recommended resource in every single podcast and interview that she does. A quick Google search will show you that. And I'm not one to just (laughs) jump on and make a harsh judgment about someone. So I literally went to her and I was like, hey, do you like, do you promote her still? I see that you have, but are you aware of the stuff she's doing at the moment? Because Christiane Northrup is very blood libel, anti-Semitic, sort of those David Icke views, right? She's also like anti-mammograms and just some really, you know, she said her medical license revoked. She's not a, not a great person. And so I asked, I asked Jane Hardwick Collings and she said, whilst I don't necessarily agree with her current perspective, I still do value her valuable contributions to women's health. And personally, to me, that still sounds like an endorsement of someone who is increasingly anti-Semitic and shares dangerous health advice. And I just can't get behind that. And I think that is where this blend comes in. And it is sometimes really subtle. And when we were talking about Anthony Williams and the the celery juice thing, personally, I have tried the celery juice thing and I went into it like I did with the David Icke book and everything. I I went into it very, you know, I'm not. I'm not gullible, but I am open-minded. I'm willing to be like, lots of people are doing this thing. Let's just check it out. I'll see for myself. I would rather see for myself than have people tell me something is problematic or bad. I'm like, well, let me see what I think, right? And I flicked through a couple of his books and he has a lot of stuff on migraines. You guys know I get chronic migraines. And I was like, you know what? I'll try just the celery juice and see if it helps. And you know what? After three months of drinking that damn stuff every morning, I actually felt so much worse. I had no energy it was, it was giving me stomach cramps. It was not a good thing. And I actually went onto one of those Facebook groups and this is where that comment came in. And I said, I'm not like, I've not noticed any difference. If anything, I'm worse. And the comments that came back were, you're just detoxing. That's a detox symptom. Ramp it up and stick with it. Very not good advice. And the second one, you're not doing it good enough. (laughs) You haven't gone all in. And you need to do X, Y, and Z, like very restrictive diet changes. And I'm like, you know what? If it was as miraculous as he says, then just doing this one thing should have at least shown some difference. And it hasn't in the positive. And I've given it a good go. So I just kind of went, you know what? I'm going to stop. And it wasn't until I tried it, went into the Facebook groups, read the books that I started to see his darker side to a lot of the stuff that he promotes. And you guys know me, I'm a human design profile one three, right? That I'm line one three. That means one, 
I want to have all of the knowledge before I say anything. And that's why I usually try things before I actually give a, you know, I will never tell you a book is good until I've actually read it or that it's bad until I've actually read it. I want to know all the things so I don't get it wrong. And then number three is about experiencing. And that means I usually learn things the hard way, but it leads into number one and helps me give really good advice. And I know a lot of the stuff I'm talking about because I've done the thing, right? So I want you guys to come away from this episode, A, with more critical thinking around, you know, questioning some of the stuff that you might believe or the people that you follow. B, I actually highly recommend the Conspirituality podcast and you guys go and have a listen. Um, You know, just pick the ones that, you know, oh, they're talking about Russell Brand. I like Russell Brand. Let me read, listen to that one and just see what they say and listen with an open mind because they are very, as you can tell with Matthew, very, very well-educated, well-spoken, and they know what they're talking about. But at the same time, if you have, you know, picked up A Course in Miracles or jumped on the celery juice trend, don't feel bad about it, right? I have, I've done it. It doesn't mean that you're an idiot. (laughs) They prey on people and particularly myself having chronic migraines, you get desperate. You try, I've tried the weirdest freaking shit just thinking maybe it will help. The only thing I haven't gone into, there's this woman who calls, she has, she says she has the migraine cure. I should know that that's a big bad buzzword, but I looked it up and it looked pretty legit. She's got all these like qualifications, but her prescription for people with migraines, she says that they can't eat any vegetables or fruit or gluten. It's literally an all meat diet carnival completely. Obviously I was like, I, that's one thing I'm not trying. I'm just, I would rather have migraines. That sounds horrendous and it sounds really unhealthy. And then she also makes people drink salt water eight times a day. Not quite for me. That's one where I've crossed the line, but everything else I've tried and I'll try a mix of like Western, Eastern, unusual energy healing sessions, sound healing sessions, Reiki, kinesiology, Cairo, uh, herbal healing, herbalism. And then I've got a neurologist as well. At the same time, I've got both sides. At the time of recording, I am trying traditional Chinese medicine and we're just going to see how that goes. And this is not a me like, hey, tell me all the things to try because I've probably tried them all. You may even know I had my tongue tie released in 2021. Yeah, I think that's what it was. And unfortunately, whilst it did stop them for about six months, it grew back and made them worse because scar tissue is more restrictive. <sighs> but I'm also not one to just sit down and just let them happen. I have to do something about it and try. Always trying. Can't lose hope. Otherwise, it gets overwhelming. All of that ramble to just let you know that... It's okay to be taken in by these, but also if you can bring yourself out and if you can use your critical thinking, that's going to help you so much more in the long run. And if you guys ever see me doing stuff that you're like, Hannah, that's a bit problematic, or that could be ableist or transphobic or anything like that, you know that that is so not what I'm about. So like, please call me out on it. Absolutely. I am always open to learning and I would really hope that that's not anything I ever do and if I do it would be unintentional but again impact over intent so that is my random ramblings at the end of this episode because there was a lot to say and we didn't have all the time in the world but I wanted to get a couple of those stories out there for you all as usual if you would like to book in with myself you can do so at suburbanwitchery.com you'll also find me on social media as suburbanwitchery on Instagram Facebook TikTok over on Twitter, I'm Hannah, the SW. We also have our 
podcast Instagram called at Witch Talks Podcast, which is where I post all the graphics so you can see what's coming up and all other fun stuff are related to the podcast specifically. I hope you have a lovely day wherever you are in the world today and I'll chat with you next time.